See, John got you all warmed up there. So, as is our my custom, I guess, I like to get up and talk a little bit about study throughout the week and some of the experiences I may have had. And uh, this week, I want to talk about something that happened prior to last week's message. Um, so prior to last week's message, we've been covering some heavy topics through this book, I think. We've been talking about uh, faith and an unbelief, grace and works, obedience and lawlessness that eventually or ultimately will lead to life or death. Now, this is some heavy stuff we've been talking about. And, and in my prayer time, I was, I was just pouring myself out to God, and I said, Lord, I just want to make sure I'm, I'm saying what is right. I want to follow your scripture and be accurate to what your word says. And the Lord answered that prayer uh, in a kind of delightful way, actually. See, after church last week, um, we went home, and as our, as our custom at home, we have lunch and we eat whatever, just sit around, you know, just shooting a breeze. And, and Pam, she had not been in service because she was doing the word back with the little kids, uh, taking care of the kids, and she hadn't heard me uh, practice the sermon because I usually go into the basement and preach to the dog or whoever, and whoever would listen, you know, so she hadn't heard the, the sermon at all. Yeah, or an empty chair. Um, so she comes up and she sits down and we start shooting a breeze, and, and this is what she said to me. Now, remember last week we were talking about lawlessness and righteousness and how it contrasted the two. And she sat down and she says, You know, Steve, obedience is linked to our sanctification because it is God working in us. And if we're not obedient to God, then God is not working in us. I go, That's right. You know, you didn't hear the sermon today, did you? No. It says, That's what we were talking about. And, and then she says, you know, in First James it says, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. I say, yeah, we talked about that too, because you, the word of God has a work in you and you want to be a doer of the word. And it gives you confidence in who you are in Christ because of that. You're not delusional. You're working for Jesus. <laughs> and she wasn't done yet either. And she says, and, and you know what else? And I said, what? What, honey? What else? She says, and this one blew my mind because it actually went beyond what we talked about. She says, obedience is a yoke that binds us to God and at the same time relieves our burdens, again, because it is God working in us. And I was like, honey, you just covered the whole sermon in two sentences in about five minutes. You know, when we're linked to God, we are yoked with him. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30 Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and, and burdened, and I will give you rest. And all you take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And think of a, like a, a picture in your mind, two oxen working in the field. Next slide. And, and you have two oxen that are yoked together. And this is why our burdens become lighter, because we're working with Christ in us. He is pulling the load. He's helping us to do what we ought to do for the church and in our lives. It's not us doing it. It's Jesus working in us. That's what relieves our burdens. It's amazing. So <laughs> I figured 
you know, we'll get Pam up here, she'll speak for five minutes and we can start eating dinner. <laughs> but when the Holy Spirit gives a word like that, and he puts things in such an economy of words, it just blows your mind sometimes. Yeah, when we're burdened together, we're linked together with Christ, we're working with him, and that's a marvelous thing. But she covered the whole sermon in like two sentences, what took me like 48 minutes to talk about. So last week we were talking about authority and obedience. And I think when we talk about authority and obedience from my perspective, I think most of us think it's like a dictatorship where men are dictating their control over people. But that's not a biblical perspective at all. Actually, kingdom authority comes directly from God, and we are given jobs to do, responsibilities that require authority to accomplish. We're going to be talking that today when we appoint our new deacon. We are sheep and have a tendency to wander, and we need godly leadership to keep us in line. Not that we're the taskmaster whipping us, but you know we need leadership to keep us going the right direction. Then we're yoked together with Christ because he, Jesus, is ultimately in charge and in control. And he is the one who's calling the shots, not any man. And in leadership, I think it's important to have the right attitude about authority. And I think John the Baptist said it well. He, his disciples, John's disciples, noticed that Jesus was baptizing more people than he was, and they got a little jealous. And John just said to them, well, in John 3.30, he said, he must increase, but I must decrease. And a short time later, they cut off his head. You know, for us, in, in leadership positions, or if we are influencing teaching, things like that, uh, then we need to have the same perspective that God needs to come first. It's about him, it's not about us. So the message this week is the results of righteousness. And I think it's going to be a carry-on. Uh, 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 still, we have this contrast between righteousness and lawlessness. And it's going to be, John is actually going to paint that out more clear for us this week. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy and thank you for your love. Lord, we come to you and we, we just ask that, that you bring your word to our hearts and minds, that we can be transformed and serve you correctly and obediently. Help us to be found, to be doers of your word, to be obedient to you, to your authority, and to your love, motivated by love. Thank you for your mercy upon us, and thank you for Jesus Christ who makes all things possible. And may we lift up his name today, and to those around us throughout the week, that others may know who he is, and be found to be a follower of yours as well. Thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing here in our hearts and minds, and thank you for your great love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the first section we're going to talk about is 1 John 3, verses 11 through 15. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil. And his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, 
and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This brings us to our first point, that abiding in Christ creates conflict. The conflict of Cain and Abel displays a struggle between faith and unbelief, truth and deception, grace and works, obedience and lawlessness, again, which ultimately leads to life or death. Now, if you read the narrative in Genesis 4, it would appear that both were giving from the produce of their work. That is true. Cain and Cain offered grain and Abel offered from his flock. It wasn't that the offering was a problem, it was the person. Wiersbe puts it this way, Cain wasn't rejected because of his offering, but his offering was rejected because of Cain. His heart wasn't right with God. The, the Hebrews, they had grain offerings, so there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. And on the other hand, Abel, in Hebrews 11.4 says, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, though which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. And MacArthur's opinion of Abel is that Abel's offering was acceptable, not just because it was an animal, nor just because it was the very best of what he had, nor even that it was a culmination of a zealous heart for God but because it was in every way obediently given according to what God must have revealed. So the fact that Abel gave his offering by faith is an indication that Abel was operating obediently by faith and was demonstrating righteousness before God because it was what God would have him to do. In the same way Abraham believed God, In Romans 4, verses 2 and 3, it says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. God told Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars, in Genesis 15, 6. And Abraham, he simply believed God, even if it seemed impossible. Abraham's faith also brought him into obedience, and he was told to do some extraordinary things. He left Ur and walked to Canaan. Now, I walked around that desert before, and to to be in Ur and say you want to walk to Jerusalem, basically, to Canaan, that's approximately a long long way to go, especially if you're walking. You would have had to walk around the the Fertile Crescent to get there, because if you walked straight across the desert, you would die. It's a very hostile place. So for God to tell Abraham to get up and start walking, you know, that was a matter of faith and obedience, and Abraham responded. You know, Abraham also offered his son as a sacrifice, a human sacrifice. That was incredible, because Abraham had to say, well, he promised that my descendants will be like the stars of heaven, but I know he told me to do this, and he just acted out of obedience. And in those days, human sacrifice was actually something the pagans did. You know, For us, it seems kind of weird, but back then it made sense. And of course, God stopped him short of that because he was demonstrating faith and obedience. And it was pointing to Christ. Following God by faith will many times bring you to a point that means like, you want me to do what moment? <laughs> Abraham believed. This word believe is, means to, is pisteo or verb form pistis, which means to have faith 
in upon with respect to a person or thing, by implication to entrust, especially one's spiritual well-being to Christ. To believe, commit, to trust, to put trust in. That's what it's about. It's not just believing that God exists. Even the devil believes that. But you put trust in God and say, I will do what you told me to do, even if it sounds kind of weird. I'm going to walk, go from Canaan or from Ur to Canaan. That's a long way. But I'm going to start walking because you told me to do it. It's about trust. So let me demonstrate. This chair is sitting here, right? And I believe this chair exists. I can believe that Jesus kind of exists in the same manner. I just think he's out there. I believe in Jesus. But if I'm going to trust Jesus, I have to put my trust in him. If I'm going to trust this chair to demonstrate trust that it will hold me up, I have to sit down in it. It's not that I just believe the chair exists. It's If I'm going to trust it, I have to sit in it. And it's the same way with Christ. We have to put ourselves in his trust to rest in what he has done for us, not what we are doing. And because of what Jesus has done on the cross, then we can understand that we are righteous before God, not because of our righteousness, but because of his. And then God sets us free to serve him so that we will do what God intends for us to do. It's an amazing process. Faith brings us into obedience and righteousness of Christ. He dwells in you. It is what is meant by abiding in Christ. And because of his righteousness, we will be persecuted. And the reason for this, in 1 John 3, verse 14, it says, He does not love, abides in death. And we talked about this word abiding last week as well, but it means to remain or to stay that way. So people who do not love Christ are abiding in death, just like we who do love Christ are abiding in life, in Christ. The whole world is abiding in death, and so were we before Christ. You know, we, we talk about the world like it's a world system. Well, the, that world system is made up of people who have a self, selfish nature, and that's what they're motivated by. They are, in essence, abiding in death. That's all they know. Now, we are abiding in Christ, who is our life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The life being in Christ is a dis- Discussion of eternal life. Remember who Christ actually is. He is one of us. He's both fully man, but more. He's much more. He's also fully God, who is perfect and eternal. So when Christ gives us his life, it's not only for sin. It did. He did pay the price for sin because we had eternal sin resting on us that we could never pay back. And he paid that sin debt for us. But his indwelling presence changes us and creates us new. And his presence in our heart, the Holy Spirit, will never leave us because it's Christ's life in us. It's an eternal life that will never be taken away. 1 John 4 says, The life was in him, and the life was the light of men. This, this life that God gives to us is a creative power that changes us, transforms us into new creatures. He created us materially first with the universe, and then he recreates in us a spirit of God. His, his own image is impressed on us through the Holy Spirit as we read and understand his word. And John 3.36 is, The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. But the one who refuses to believe in the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. 
I think we take a, a wrong approach in the church many times. We tried to make the church more acceptable to the world. What in the world are we thinking? We will never be acceptable to the world. You're the righteousness of God. And they don't understand that. We want to take that so that they can understand it through His Word and through the Holy Spirit, but we should not make ourselves acceptable to the world. The first century church, did they do that? No, they were thrown in prison. They were thrown in jail because of their testimony. This is an irrational liberal argument to make ourselves acceptable to God, to the world. If God is love, why would he condemn the world, the liberal may say. This is based on a self-righteous perception of man, which is a lie. The reality is that man, apart from Christ, is already condemned to hell. They're separated from God. They're abiding in death. The world is abiding in death. There is no remedy but one, which is Christ Jesus crucified on the cross and raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. So the world will not accept Christ because they believe they are righteous before God. And there are all kinds of different flavors to that lie. All the world religions and some sects of Christianity attempt to make man better so as to deserve eternal life or to bring man up to God's standard. The problem is the world is using the wrong scale to measure righteousness. We serve a God where holy men of God have seen God in his glory, seen Jesus Christ in his glory, and their unified response is, I'm dead. Holy men of God have stood before God and seen him in his glory and have said, I'm undone. There's nothing I can do. There's no remedy. I can't stand before God like this. That's the response of holy men of God. We definitely need help. The world doesn't have a clue and are blind to the realities of God. They are comfortable abiding in death. They know nothing else and they will hate us because we're not like him. The righteousness of God offends them. What is a fragrance of life to us is a fragrance of death to the world because God's word is truth and the world is deceived. 2 Corinthians 2, 14-16 says, But thanks be to God who always puts us on display in Christ and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For to God we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To some, who, to some we are the aroma of death leading to death, but to others the aroma of life leading to life. And who is competent for this? It's something that God does through us, through our testimony. When we tell people about Jesus Christ, if they receive it, it, it they're going to receive life. But if they don't, they're not going to be very happy about it. The Holy Spirit convicts men about sin, their unrighteousness, and judgment. Their separation from God is the judgment. It's the product of their sin and God's righteousness. In John 16, 8-11, it says, When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. They're in their sin. And about righteousness, because I am going to the Father, and you will no longer see me. And the Holy Spirit will convict men that, that they've fallen short of God's righteousness. And about judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged already. 
I remember when I gave my heart to Jesus Christ, I read the Bible. And it was a funny thing because I read the scripture and I didn't really understand it for many years because from where my perspective, I already knew I was a sinner. I had that one, that one covered. There wasn't any argument on that part because I, would, I, I was. I knew I was an enemy of God. I stated it myself to other people in restricting the Holy Spirit, I guess. But when the Holy Spirit came upon me, he went right to the third thing, the judgment. He said, if you reject Jesus, you will be without him forever. This is not a small thing. If you reject Christ, you will be separated from God forever. So for me, the decision wasn't about my sin. It was about, I already knew I was a sinner before God. I just didn't want to be without Jesus. It was the judgment part that brought me to Christ. I said, I'm in. Actually, I said, let's go. I didn't know what else to say, but yes. But that's what the Holy Spirit does. For those who are outside of Christ, he convicts them of their sin, of God's righteousness, and of judgment, impending judgment. It's coming. If the world rejects the conviction of the Holy Spirit, they are left abiding in death, and the outcome is that they will hate us because we have accepted God's grace through Christ. John 15, 18-21 says, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but because I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If we kept... If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will not they will do all these things on account of my name, because they do not know the one who sent me. This hatred is based on a conflict of natures, the likeness of Christ or, or the devil. It's a conflict of faith and unbelief, grace and works, life and death. God used this hatred to put Jesus on the cross, and Jesus even predicted it. And this this is just phenomenal. In Matthew 23, 29-36, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. And you say, if, if, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would have taken part with them in the shedding of the prophets' blood. You therefore testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's sins, you snakes, you brood of vipers. How can you escape being condemned to hell? He's talking to religious people. How can you escape being condemned to hell? This is why I'm sending you prophets and sages and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will flog in your synagogues and hound from town to town. So all the righteous blood shed on earth, will be charged to you from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. I assure you, all these things will come on this generation. It's amazing that Jesus actually spoke, and, and he says, some of, you, some of them you will kill and crucify. If the Jews were going to kill somebody, they didn't crucify him. They picked up stones and stoned him. Right? And Jesus says, you will crucify. This, this verb is an indicative future tense of what will is going to happen. 
He's talking about himself. You're going to crucify me. And then he says, some of them you will flog in your synagogues and hound from town to town. Again, that verb is the same. It's a future tense. This is what's going to happen. And what did Saul do? He went around from town to town persecuting Christians. It's amazing. Jesus is actually prophesying that these these Pharisees are going to do this to the church and to himself. It wasn't a surprise that God was going to be crucified. Jesus predicted it. He knew exactly what was going on. And he used their hatred to motivate them to to put him on the cross. It's no wonder that the world hates us. We do not conform to this world, but have been transformed by Christ. Romans 12, 1-2 says, Because of this transformation, we operate by the love, not selfish ambition. I just mentioned the verse there. That's not the actual verse. But Romans 12, verse 2 says we're transformed by the renewing of our mind that we we know what the perfect will of God is. We're made new. We need to keep in mind that God is not surprised by the conflict, but uses the conflict to execute His plan. We need to walk with Him through the conflict by faith because of His love. That's what the first century church did. They were under heavy persecution, and they held up to it because they knew that God was in charge of everything. And 1 John 3, 16-18 says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but indeed in truth. Which brings us to our second point. We love because God is love. In 1 John 3, verse 1, it says, Look how great a love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. And we are. The reason the world does not know this is that it did not know Him. Previous to Christ, we were dead in our transgressions, lost without hope. We talked about this earlier in Ephesians 2, 4-7. It says, But God, who is rich in His mercy, because of His great love that He had us for us, made us alive with the Messiah, even though we are dead in our trans- transgressions or our trespasses. You are saved by grace. Together with Christ Jesus, He also raised us up and seated us in the heavens, so that in the coming ages to come, He might display the immeasurable riches of His grace. <laughs> through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We need to maintain an eternal perspective on things. Um, I saw this demonstration on YouTube, and I, I should have brought a rope in, but this one guy, I'll just talk about it, you get the idea. This one guy had this rope, and it was a really long rope, right? And about this much of the rope, he had taped up. And he said, this represents time. This is where we are right now. And he had this long rope that kind of, and I guess a, a proper demonstration would probably have the rope going out the window and continuing to go. And that, the rest of the rope represented eternal, eternal things, eternity. And I thought that was pretty good because his point was is that we live our whole lives in this first section of the rope and kind of forget about the rest of it. You know? And I think that's true to a certain degree. You know, we want to have an eternal perspective on things. The things that we're motivated to do now are motivated by the love of God, and it's about the rest of the rope, not necessarily about this little part right here. 
And I think eternity for us is kind of a hard thing to wrap our minds around, isn't it? You know, we kind of think of eternity like it's um, time that continues. But I think that's inaccurate. I think eternity, and again, this is something I've just been thinking about, but I think eternity is actually time that doesn't exist. You know, because God created time, space, and matter for us to exist in right now so that we can demonstrate faith and obedience so that we can be worthy to serve him later. And the people who come forward are come forward because of what God is doing in our hearts and lives to serve him. We're acting out of obedience to do what we ought to be doing, but we need to keep in our mind that Right now is just a little, little portion. I think right here is probably pretty generous. The time that we're serving in right now is very short. And we need to have an eternal perspective on things that looks ahead down the road. We need to work for Jesus and obediently follow Christ. In 1 John 3, verses 19 through 24, it says, We will know this, that we are of the truth, and we will assure our heart before him, and whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and, and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing to him. This is the commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandment abides in him, and he in him. We know this, that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given. Which brings us to our third point, that we walk in truth. I love the fact that 1 John 3.22, getting whatever you ask for is correlating to knowing God's will and being obedient to God's will. Again, Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And faith isn't about us moving God. We talked about this last time I spoke. It's not about us moving God to do what, he, what we want. It's about Faith is about God moving us so that we do what he wants. So if you understand what the will of God is, then you say, I will pray for this because I know this is what God wants. And then you will have what you ask for. Faith is a matter of obediently walking before God. It's not about us getting things from God. It's about us moving in the direction God wants us to go. You know that Jesus always did what the Father wanted him to do, including breaking the Sabbath. He was a slave to his father's will and is a perfect example of faith and obedience. You know, some may look at that and say, well, Jesus actually was anti-authoritarian because he didn't do what the Pharisees said. That's actually incorrect because Jesus was being obedient to his father because it was what his father was doing. He always did what his father did. And besides that, the Pharisees were corrupt and their father was the devil. So, of course, he didn't follow them. In John 5, verses 18 through 20, it says, 
This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making him equal with God. Then Jesus replied, I assure you the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son also does. These things in the same way. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing, and he will show him greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. Jesus was doing exactly what his father told him to do on the Sabbath, heal people, right in front of the Pharisees so they get angry and eventually crucify him. He knew exactly what was going to happen and he was being exactly obedient to his father and yes, he was under authority of his father to do his father's will. When Jesus tells us to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, one, he wrote that before he actually took up his cross and followed him. He said that to his disciples, which is kind of interesting. But for Jesus to take up his cross and follow him, meaning was meant that I'm going to be obedient to my father. So that implies to us that if he tells us to do that, it means that we need to be obedient to Jesus and to his father. That's all. And whatever God tells us to do. And if we die for Christ, we're being persecuted, okay. As long as I'm doing what God wants me to do, that's the important thing. We should also consider that Paul and John both wrote while enduring hardship for Christ. And they were serious about following God's will. And Philippians 1, 29-30 says, For it has been given to us on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also suffer for him, having the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. Paul was suffering for Christ. Suffering for Christ because of obedient love is good. Remember Paul and Silas? They were in the prison, and God sends an earthquake, and the bars are rattling, and the, the gates come open, and all the chains fall off. You know, I don't know about you, but I was thinking of that story this morning. And I'm thinking, man, if that happened to me, I'd be trucking. I'm out of there. But what did Paul do? The jailer had come out, he's going to bring out a sword and kill himself because he knew he's dead already because all the prisoners probably escaped. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Don't kill yourself. Let's talk about Jesus. And he says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You are in your household. This guy was shaken to the bone and, and God did all that so this one jailer could be saved. Isn't that an amazing story? They suffered for Christ. And instead of running away from the suffering that Paul had a chance to do there, he just stayed there and shared Christ with the guy. Amazing. In 1 John 3.23, it says, This is the commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. Believing in Christ is the most basic understanding of God. The people were looking for a sign from God, and Jesus was standing right in front of them, and it's pointing to Himself. In John 6.29, Jesus said, He answered them and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Speaking of Himself. And this word, believe, is this word pisteo again. It has a faith, understanding, and trust. Moral conviction is based on truth, on the very realities of God and His Word. 
working in our heart, just like Abraham had. And we are to love one another. In John 13, 34 through 35, he says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It's amazing that the world will look at us and see us that we have this love and it will be identifying mark on us. They, they, there's something else going on here. I don't really understand it. But I'm curious. I want to find out about how they're loving each other. There's something different about this group of people. They're not just religious. There's something else going on here. I want to figure that out. But it's a testimony to the world that we have love for each other and we should also love the world through God's eyes. These people are perishing. They will end up in eternal hell and damnation if, if they don't hear God's truth. And you have the truth in your heart and in your mind, and you have the Scriptures right here to share with them. Just ask the Lord to help you do it. That's what He wants us to do. And then help each other, too, so that we can be better at it, I guess. In 1 John 4.21, it says, In this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should also love his brother also. In 1 John 3.24, it says, For we know this, that he abides in us, in the Spirit whom he has given us. By the Spirit whom he has given us. I love this, the fact that the Holy Spirit testifies to our soul who we are in Christ and, and calms us. You know, he's called a comforter. And there's a good reason for that because in my case, I have a lot to be worried about other than the fact that Jesus died for my sins and the Holy Spirit is abiding in my heart. But he comforts our hearts and tells us who we are. In Romans 8, 14 through 17, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. It doesn't get any better than that, folks. You have been redeemed into God's family, and God is now your Father. Just like Jesus introduced His Heavenly Father, He brings His Father and gives Him to us, or we are given to Him. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also. And that'll blow your mind. That's coming. We receive the Holy Spirit now, but there's more in the eternal perspective that we can't even imagine. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Suffering because of the name of Jesus Christ is an honor. It is something that we should have on our heart that if someone persecutes us, praise God. At least they heard the message. If they don't receive the message, maybe they'll receive it the next time, or the next time, or the next time. And if you're thrown in jail, or if you're killed, I'll tell you, that's a good way to go to see Jesus. I'm sorry, Jesus, they just killed me, but you know I was trying to talk for you. That's a Christian perspective. That's what we see in the Bible. 
I don't want to freak out any kids. I apologize for that. But, you know, that's who we are in Jesus. People will not be happy with us sometimes because of who we are. We are not under a spirit of slavery in the sense that we are under a taskmaster. But as a child, under the authority of a loving father, we submit to his will. We have been set free to serve him. If that means we suffer, we gladly receive it because we are walking with Jesus, sharing in the sufferings of Christ. He will walk with us through it. And if they persecute Jesus, they will persecute us. The United States is something of an anomaly, honestly. If you look around the world, there's more Christians being persecuted today than in the entire history of the church. We here, because of our Constitution, have some constitutional protection. But that doesn't mean that we're outside of being persecuted necessarily. It's just, I don't know, it's kind of things, the way things have been set up. But I don't think we should, we should be grateful for what we have. But we should understand who we are in Christ as well. And be willing to suffer if he brings it upon us. The question is, are we willing to accept Christ even through suffering? If we have an eternal perspective, we will understand that we are sharing in the sufferings of Christ when persecuted. And Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount in Luke 6, 22-23, You are blessed when people hate you, when they exclude you, and insult you, and slander you, your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, for your reward in heaven is great. For this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. And this goes way back all the way to Cain and Abel. And I think this is what the Lord would have us to understand, that we are his and there is a conflict. We are going to be in conflict with the world. And when we share Christ with people, you're sharing his righteousness. This is what God wants you to do is to turn your life over to Christ so that you could be forgiven of your sin. And the Holy Spirit will convict people of their sin, of the righteousness of God, and the impending judgment. And some people, that's an aroma of, of death. For us, it's life because we know Christ.